And this morning we're going to look at the topic of discipleship. In this story, every person mentioned is either discipling or being discipled. And from person to person, their way of living is passed around. From John the Baptist to John and Andrew the disciples to Jesus to Peter, every person eventually carries out that great commission to make disciples. Yet, if you look at these people in this story this morning, from this small group of people, you would have never guessed if you looked at their resumes that this would have been the group that discipled the world. That Christianity would spread all throughout the world. There are more Christians on earth now than there have ever been. And it all started with a group the size of a mustard seed. Very small. Kingdom faith. Smaller than even this group of people this morning in this church. Think about that. A group smaller than this church has completely impacted the entire world in the way that we think about everything. A couple weirdos that smelled like fish, ate bugs, and had fiery words to say about people. That was the the world changers. That was the kind of people that we're talking about. And when I look at this group of people here in this text, I see something of the same kind of people that we have right here this morning. People of southern Illinois. We stick our hands in catfish holes all the way up to the shoulder and pull out 50 pounders. And we eat those things. We we get frog legs and we fry them up. We might not be eating bugs, but we are eating weird things like that. We might even we're weird things and we might even have a few strong words for the brood of vipers in our government right we're not too far off from these kind of people this kind of thing it resonates with us but what separates us what separates disciples from fans is the ability to resolutely follow to continue to pass on what we have our society they crave quick uncommitted zero tie relationships and they're terrified of responsibility And what discipleship takes is doing the opposite of all that. If we're going to be world changers, if we're going to be uh, like Christians have historically been in changing the way that everyone thinks about everything, then we're going to have to be disciples and make disciples. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Again, the text is John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. These are the words of God, church. Let's give attention to them. John writes, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that night, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy and inspired word this morning, we are insufficient to even fully understand what we have read without the help of your Holy Spirit. So we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in the beginning and brought order from the disorder. We pray that you would bring order to our lives, to our hearts, as we come into here maybe feeling a little bit chaotic feeling a little bit disheveled and having um, our, our, our minds and our heads spinning. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would bring order to us. 
that you would change us as we encounter your truth and that as we encounter your inspired word, we pray that we ourselves would be inspired by that same spirit that breathed these words out to us. Lord, help me as I preach this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we look in this text this morning and we see them talking about disciples. And we're going to ask that question this morning. What is a disciple? John assumes that as he's just writing here that you're going to know in verse 45 that what a disciple is. He says the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Well, if you look in verse 38, you can see already that a disciple is a learner. It's someone that is a student of something. The disciples were already submitting themselves to John. You can see they're hanging out with John the Baptist. Note again, this is not uh, the one that wrote the, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written by someone other. This is John the Baptist, that great preparer for Jesus. He had disciples, and disciples were following him. But then Jesus comes, and they call him teacher. They call him teacher. So these two disciples rightly see themselves as students ready to learn from the teacher, from Rabbi Jesus. So a disciple is one who disciplines himself in the teachings and practices of another. You can kind of hear it in the word disciple, discipline. It takes effort. To learn is to willingly discipline oneself. For example, if one is to advance in the medical field or whatever field, really, one has to discipline himself and learn to follow the principles and the fundamentals of the best doctors in that area of study. I'm sorry, but as much as we think that we know it all because we have the Internet, we don't. That's just the reality. Uh, I was talking to my cousin just yesterday about how it is really great that we have the internet. We can do all these do-it-yourself projects. You can uh, let, you can learn how to lay tile. You can learn how to do all kinds of stuff, stuff from uh, uh, looking up a, a YouTube video. But when it really comes down to the important things, like you need that major surgery, you can't look it up on YouTube. If you, if you think that you can, I'm sorry. You're going to get a quick realization that there's a lot of sense in being discipled by someone and taking the time, that effort that it takes to sit under someone and let them teach you something, to humble yourself and get at that spot. Doctors, they have residencies. Electricians, they have apprenticeships. Financiers, they have internships. Christians, they have discipleships. We are a discipling people. That's how we reproduce, and that's how we move forward as the church. And note that all of those things must be applied for. It takes effort. If you want to get into a good school, you apply yourself. You don't wait for them to come and drag you to the school. They're not going to do that. If you, if you want to become a disciple of someone, you need to go and ask that person. Can I learn from you? Can I sit at your feet? Can I, can I call you teacher? Can I call you rabbi? Can I be discipled for you? If you want to go and be a, a part of greatness, right? If, say you want to get into Harvard. Don't wait for Harvard to call you. Don't wait for Yale to, to call you. You have to apply there, and then they can be accepted and call you in. So don't wait for the next top theologian or whoever it is, that really influential person in your life, to call you to be their disciple. If you want to learn from some, something from them, if you see that they are uh, following Christianity and they're doing really good at life, they understand what they should be doing, and you want that, go to that person. Ask if they would be a discipler to you. So you have to do it on your own. You have to be a follower. As, as it says in, uh, text, in the text in verse 37 and 38, they follow Jesus, and Jesus saw them following him. There's this element of following. It's kind of like uh, being a s- subscriber, but even more so. It's It's relational. They, they entrust themselves to this person and believe what the teacher says, and they're uh, acknowledging them as an authority figure to be able to speak into their life. 
Therefore, to be a disciple is to be in relationship. Right? It's, it's having an imitative, instructive, and uh, uh, imaginative connection with the teacher. Right? Your minds are being tied together. You're learning from this person. You're having a close relationship. You, you obey and put into practice the teachings of the one that you're learning. And just as a good teacher doesn't allow the, the children to run crazy in the classroom, right? some of you are teachers in the room, you don't just let them run crazy. You actually evoke discipline from them, don't you? You, you lay the law down, and you put a healthy pressure on them to do what they should be doing. You're helping them really to achieve what they're there for, aren't you? If they're there to get an education, then you put that pressure on them to become more knowledgeable. If you're there to teach them uh, about the medical field, you press them with questions. You ask them pressing questions. So, church, as we look in verse 38, we have a pressing question here. What is it that a disciple, that a disciple seeks? Verse 38 says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And I'd like to ask you, church, this morning, what are you seeking? If you're going into a discipleship, what is it that you're after? So good disciples like Jesus, they ask these kind of questions of us. They they ask us questions that make us look at our heart, to make us analyze what we're doing, the whole reason that we're there. Now, when they're asked this question, it's kind of funny. Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they answer that question with another question. Rabbi, where are you staying? It's kind of funny the, the way that they respond there. Now, Rabbi probably signals respect on the one hand, uh, that they're, they're interested in becoming his disciple. It would be kind of like uh, me coming to like my, my brother-in-law. He's a teacher. If I came to him and I said, uh, Michael, you're a teacher. What do you think about this? By me saying you're a teacher, that shows that I'm interested in learning from you. I'm interested in being your disciple. I acknowledge you as kind of an authority figure in that area, and you're able to speak to that. And this is what the disciples were doing. They were coming to him and saying, Rabbi, you know something that I don't. Teacher, I want to learn from you. Now, it may be that they're just nervous. Maybe this is why they answer a question with a question. They're, they're approaching Jesus. Jesus is a renowned teacher in his day. It might be like... If you're trying to learn something about the government and you somehow had the opportunity to meet the president and you got to meet the president, you'd probably be pretty nervous. If he asked you a question and you kind of answered with a question back, it wouldn't be that surprising, would it? I mean, you're a little bit nervous. You're kind of sweating. You're like, I don't know what to say to this guy. He obviously knows way more than I do, but I, I kind of want to learn something from him. So maybe, they, maybe they're nervous. Maybe that's why they answer a question with a question. But the most likely answer that I think is because they're interested in an extended conversation. This actually happens a lot if you think about it. When someone asks you a question and you're in a deep conversation, it's not unusual then to answer a question with a question. They weren't interested in just a quick chat. They didn't want a yes or no answer. They were willing to stay there for a while. And it's almost as if to say if someone asked you what you were searching for, you might say, how much time do you have? Right? That's kind of what they're saying there. Where are you staying? How long do you got? What are you seeking for? Well, how much time do you got? I think that's kind of what they're saying here. So they say this because they're truly concerned about their pursuit. They're after something, and they want to make sure that they get it. So they're saying, how long are you going to be around? How long can I follow you? How, can I, how long can I walk with you? So if you're truly seeking something, you're willing to take the time to find it. And what they were ultimately seeking, and what we ultimately should be seeking, is truth. Disciples seek truth. Truth, And more specifically, the truth that they wanted to know was, is this Jesus really the Messiah? Is this Jesus really the Christ? He, John has just told me, my disciple, John has just told me that he is the Lamb of God. Now what does that mean? 
these disciples are thinking. They want to know. They want to get with Jesus, and they want to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus and find out what in the world does that mean, that this guy is the Lamb of God. They have suspicions that he might be the Messiah, so they want to take the time to get to know him. This is the healthy form of seeking that we see here. These people are passionate about truth. They're passionate about understanding. They're willing to put the time in. They realize that truth takes time to settle in. It makes me think of uh, some of the things that Paul says later, that we shouldn't be quick to lay hands on or ordain people in the church as officers if they're new converts. right? Because truth takes time to settle in, doesn't it? There's, there's, there's an element of maturity that comes, moving from milk to meat. And what these people are wanting to do is just that, move from one degree of knowledge to the next. But there's unhealthy ways of seeking discipleship as well. I'd like to look at those for a second. The, the healthy form we've seen, truth-seeking um, discipler, taking time, going about it slowly. But unhealthy ways might look like seeking sinful things in discipleship. Things like popularity or, associate, or popularity by association. Where you find a disciple that is really popular. He's got a big name, and you want to hang around this guy because when you hang around this guy, he's in some cool places and co- some cool things are happening. You might have some really cool conversations, but nothing is really coming of it, of it right? We've seen this kind of thing happen. Maybe you're seeking gifts that attend right relationships. Why do rich people have so many friends? Because they give away things. They get free stuff away. And they get these, these fanboys that just follow along, but they're not actually learning anything. They're not in real communion. They're not actually becoming disciples. They're just there to hang out. We might uh, find a disciple to just be this false, um, false accountability or affirmation where we can find someone that's going to just be a yes man where you ask them a question and they're just going to affirm what you already say. But you can say, well, yeah, I got this person discipling me. I got this person mentoring me. I got people in my life. I got, I got checks and bounces. But you don't really. You've just surrounded yourself with an echo chamber that's going to just say what you want them to say. But they're not actually pressing you. They're never going to cause you to be offended. So when you're looking for someone to disciple you, and when you're discipling other people, you need to have that element of gravitas that is able to step on some toes, to to offend people, to give people hard truth. And you need to be ready for that as well. When you're uh, wrong, you want someone in your life that's going to say, man, I think you're screwing up here. I think that you need to adjust. I think you need to rethink this. I think you need to look at this at a different angle. Now, this is why TED Talks are so popular, but discipleship is not. Because every time you learn something new, you get a dopamine hit, right? And this is one reason that people like this, uh, like false discipleships. They just want to hang around someone that's going to tell them a lot of cool things, right? Like a TED Talk. You, you watch a TED Talk, and it's like 15 minutes long. And you think, wow, that was really cool. That was awesome. And then it just doesn't change you at all. That's not what you need. What you need is someone who's going to tell you something really hard, really awesome, and then hold your feet to the fire and make you become like it. That's the kind of discipleship that we need. We need people there that are going to ask us hard questions like, what are you seeking? What are you here for? Like Jesus. This is what Jesus does to his disciples. This is what we need to do in our discipleship. It's we're discipling others. So this brings us to the next question. Can disciples find what they're seeking? Can you actually find what you're seeking? If truth is what you're seeking, that's the right way to seek discipleship. If truth is what you're seeking, can truth be found? a big question. It's a philosophical question. And the answer I have is yes, truth can be found. The two found what they were seeking in this text. It says in verse 41, what does it say? We have found the Messiah. 
That was the truth that they were looking for, wasn't it? They wanted to know if this Jesus was the Messiah, if he really is the, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they said, yes, we have found it, and he is here. And they were able to look at it and point at it. Now, our society would like to say that education and, and learning, it's mostly semantic games, and uh, we don't really have any understanding of anything. We're not really learning truth because absolute truth doesn't exist. Right? We're kind of just exchanging emotional experiences, and you tell me your truth, and I'll learn my truth, and we'll just kind of get this big conglomeration of your experience. But you're not actually talking about anything solid. But these two people, when they set out to find something, they found it. They were seeking truth, and they found it. They didn't find their truth that professed that they found their Messiah. It says that they found the Messiah. They found the truth. This wasn't a subject of truth. This was an object of truth. And we know this because Andrew brought Peter to look at it. That's the object of sense. Two people can look at the same thing and say, yep, that's true. It's not your feelings and my feelings. It is the truth. So both of them can look at Jesus, who is the truth, who is the way, the life, and say, there it is. We have found truth. We have found Jesus, who is the authoritative figure on truth. Now, if you're searching for meaning, which all of you are, if you're searching for purpose, if you're searching for truth in life, just know that it actually can be found. Now, our world would like to tell you that what we need to realize is that there is no truth, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, and they glorify meaninglessness. They glorify purposelessness. They look at the world and say, isn't it chaotic? Isn't it beautiful that it just has no meaning? But no, that's not what we want. We actually want to glorify the order. We want to glorify the truth of the world that we live in. And that's what discipleship is about, is getting people to see things for what it really is, the objective truth that we're looking at, and we're able to say that's what it is. So these two disciples, they look truth right in the face, and it confronts them, and it redefines them, and it even tells them who they are. Think about that. Truth, Jesus, tells them who they are. You tell me which is the object and the subject in this scenario. The man who renames the man or the man who is renamed. Right? Truth shapes us. We don't shape truth. Let me say that again because our culture does not believe this. Truth shapes us. We do not shape truth. Think about all the identity games that we play in our culture right now. Where this person says, I identify as this. But they're not working with reality. They're working with their conception of truth. They say, I want to be named this. Call me this. God says, you're a boy. And a person says, I want to be called a girl. I identify as this. And truth says, no, 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 no. I'm going to call you what you are. The authoritative truth will tell you what you are. Peter is identified as Simon when he encounters Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, Simon, you're going to be Simon Peter. And that's who you are going to be. So truth changes us. We don't change truth. And this is what we need to understand when it comes to discipleship. It's not all just subjective experiences. There's things that we can look at that are solid. Now, if you can't find what you're seeking for in your discipler and your discipleship, you must return to the question again. So if you're going through discipleship and you say something's not working, return to the question, what am I seeking? What am I looking for? Why am I here? Because you may realize that you're dissatisfied because you got off course along the way. You've set out and searched for meaning, meaning, but along the way you found that you were more shallow than you thought you were. Right? That happens. So we can get back on course. But there's another reality that you might actually have the wrong person discipling you. You might realize this person is not a good discipler. If the person is making himself the point, 
and not the pointer, then you have encountered someone prideful enough that, to, to, to think that he is the object and not the subject himself. Think about that. So find a disciple who's able to point you beyond himself. To not say, I have all the answers. Look at me. If you ask me a question, I'm always going to give you an answer because I know everything. Right? There's people like this in the world that always want to be the point and not the pointer. But we need to realize that the world's a little bit bigger than ourselves. Be able to point our, our people to, to greater authorities to say that we don't know the answers to everything. Like when I'm talking to people and I'm discipling people and they ask me a question, sometimes I just say, I don't know about this very much, but I know someone who does. Go read St. Augustine, right? Like you, you, can, you can point to someone who's a greater figure in, in church history who's thought more about this. You can point to the scriptures, obviously, but it takes some, some interpretation. That's why discipleship matters. We have to walk along with people and have people disciple us in the faith. We need to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? Take it back to Jesus. Make sure that it all stays rooted in Jesus, that one authoritative figure. So what do you do, or what, deci- what do disciples do once they've found what they are seeking? Right? If truth can be found, if, if we've found this truth, what do we do with it once we find it? Well, the disciples in this story, they tell people what they know. They're witnessing to the truth. They say, we found the truth, and here it is. Verse 35, John tells the disciples, behold, the Lamb of God. So John's found a truth. John's had a revelation from God. He knows that this is the truth. This is the Messiah. And he says, there it is. So he's showing people. He's witnessing to the truth. Verse 41, Andrew tells Simon the truth. He says, we found the Messiah. So he's getting this truth and he's passing the truth off to another person. So disciples profess the truth that their discipler has told them. They also lead others towards the one who disciples them. So they got this truth and they're passing the truth on. And then they... They point people to the one who actually disciples them. This happens in verse 37. John passes his disciples off to Jesus. He doesn't keep them and hoard them to himself. And Andrew does the same thing. Andrew meets Jesus. He has a great night with them. They stay the night. And Andrew passes Simon on to Jesus. He says, you need to go to Jesus. You need to let Jesus disciple you. You need to let Jesus walk with you and talk with you and be changed by him. And I think this is interesting because Andrew, if you don't know this, is older than Simon. Andrew is the older brother. He's the one that could have kind of held the cards to himself and said, well, little brother, I've had an encounter with Jesus. Let me tell you something about how smart I am. But he doesn't do that. The older brother has the humility to go back to his younger brother and say, I found something amazing. I found the Messiah. So we need to be careful that we don't hold all the cards and hold all, all the information to ourselves and think that as we're discipling others that we know it all. We need to be having the, the humility that it takes to be able to pass someone off to the next person. To say, you know, actually, my discipler has taught me a lot. I've learned a lot from him, and you're already pretty advanced, so I think it might actually just be best to go to him. Like, I can tell you some truth, I can tell you what I know, but this guy, he can really help you. So we need to have that kind of humility that's able to say, I don't have all the answers, but I know someone who might be able to help you with this. So we don't take the credit, right? You're, you're like a John the Baptist who's saying, I must decrease, he must increase. And we're citing sources. We're saying, I don't know what I'm talking about very much, but I think I've learned it from this person. And if you go read this person, you can learn a lot more. And really, if you, if you look at it, Christianity, it's just one big discipleship movement. It's just one person doing a discipleship here and there, just passing back and forth and growing and growing and snowballing until you realize that the whole thing is just discipleship. That's what Christianity is. Many times, the Christians, they were just called disciples, right? 
It wasn't just the twelve. They were called disciples in the early church. If you look in Acts, they were just followers of Jesus who discipled one another, mentored one another, and grew in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord. So it's kind of like uh, like, a, like a classical education in some sense. It's not claiming anything new. It's not saying, oh, I've got this newfound truth. I've, I've found the light finally. No, it just traces and clarifies the lines pointing to the truth, to the beauty, to the goodness that has always been there from the start. That's what it's all about. You're just clarifying. You're just making it more clear for people. You're just helping people along the way so that they can find that one truth because you are not the truth. You're pointing to something else. So disciples are always pointers. They don't claim anything new. They are just pointing to the old thing that's always been there. They lay down the credit like John and pass people off to the higher authority. And when they did this, this wasn't an act of betrayal either. Sometimes get a, people get a little bit personal when it comes to discipleships. I've seen this in the church where you're discipling someone and they go and uh, start a discipleship with someone else. But you notice John is just happy with this. He's fine with this. He's, he's, he, like he says, I must decrease, he must increase. So he's ready to pass his disciples off to Jesus, and he's not getting personal about it. He wants these people to grow. He cares about their soul enough to pass them off. So them leaving and going to Jesus, this wasn't an act of betrayal. This was the next step and the, the next logical step in discipleship. So you might get to a point with someone when you need to move to someone else. So when people make claims and books and cite their sources, this is essentially what's happening. They have been discipled and they're appealing to higher disciples who have been accepted as true. So you ultimately should be able to follow that chain, that line, all the way back to the truth who is Christ. That's how discipleship works. Just connect the dots. And eventually you're going to find that you get all the way back to that one source of truth who is Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. And make it fun. For making points on the on the list of discipleship, make it fun. That's that's maybe the most important thing. When when Bree and I were going to, uh, or actually when we're going anywhere, the last thing that we say when we're about to get out of the car to the kids is, "What's the most important thing? Have fun, right? You need to have fun. Make discipleship fun. It doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be like a really uh, boring classroom. Not that all classrooms are boring. They can be fun. But the reality is, is that discipleship can be really exciting. I bet that this that night that those two disciples spent with Jesus was probably the most exhilarating night of their life. When they sat with Jesus, when they walked with Jesus, when the disciples left their homes and started to follow Jesus and went where he went, I bet that was not a drag. I bet that was super, super exciting. That was a journey. That was a, a trip. And discipleship can be like that. Your life really can be exciting like that. So find ways to actually make life fun, make discipleship fun. I think about my old pastor, the way that he pastors young men, and I love this. It's so practical. So he just takes men and does life with them. He takes them hunting. He takes them fishing. He, he takes them to help on projects in the house. He's fixing things in his house. He's got a honeydew list. They actually exchange honeydew lists, right? So he'll go and help them out in their house. Their wife's saying, I need this fixed, and, uh, and he'll go and help them fix it. Yeah, all the wives are like, thank you so much. So really, but really though, it, this works. I've had people in my home when we were moving houses and they come over and we have really good conversations and we walk with them and we talk and we do things together. We do life together. Maybe it's just having a cup of coffee. Maybe it's a really, really deep conversation where you go back every Friday and you, you meet with someone. You sit down with coffee and you have that conversation, that heart to heart, and you learn more about God. You learn more about that person. You learn more about the world. That's what discipleship looks like. It's exciting. It's fun. And it's actually the way that the whole world has been changed. It's the way that Christianity has grown to be the largest religion of all religions. 
There's more Christians than any other people, right? We're changing the world. We really are doing as we were instructed to do, to make disciples of the nations, starting from just a couple people. As I said, fewer than the people in this room. It's possible, and it's powerful. It's potent. So as we close, I'd like to say a few things about verse 42. Verse 42 says this. It says, He brought him, that is Andrew, brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which shall, or which means Peter. And if your Bibles, I think most Bibles probably have a note here. My Bible has a note after Peter, and it says Cephas or Peter are from the word for rock or stone in Aramaic and Greek, respectively. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Keep that in your mind. Rock or stone, what Jesus is doing when he says this. When Simon, the subject, is redefined by Jesus, the object of authority on truth, he is named Peter. Or Petros in the Greek is what it is, which means stone or rock. And when he does this, he's re-identifying Peter. He's essentially saying, you're being changed by me. I'm the truth. You are being changed. And the same thing he does to Peter, he does the same thing to us in baptism. Remember we talked about this last week, how we're redefined by Christ in baptism. We are now Christians. We have a new name given to us every time we are baptized, which is Christian. So in a real sense, this renaming of Peter is not unique to Peter at all, to to one particular disciple, but to all disciples. We are all renamed by Christ. Catch this. John Calvin writes this. It's, It's beautifully put. He says, all the godly indeed may be justly called Peter's stones, which have been sounded on Christ are fitted for building the temple of God. Think about that. We're all Peters. We're all stones. In Luke 19, as Jesus rode in on a donkey, and they praised him as the Messiah, they said, the Messiah has come. Remember the Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating? Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, rebuke rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Interesting, isn't it? The very stones would cry out. And John the Baptist said, And do not presume to say to yourselves, Pharisees, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Further, Peter, who's been renamed, writes in his epistle, 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Church, the, 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 the body of Christ, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's what Paul says. The foundation of the apostles and prophets can't be relayed. That one cornerstone and that one foundation has been already built. But we as living stones are being built up upon that one stone. So if you've heard people look at this passage where Peter is renamed and they say, well, look, look, Peter was renamed. He was really unique. He was the first pope, right? That's what Roman Catholicism would like to say. But that's not true. In a real sense, we are all living stones. But what what is happening there is Jesus is calling Peter out as one of his 12 disciples, one of his 12 apostles, and saying, from this foundation, from this stone, we're going to build up something great. We're going to build the kingdom of God, and it happens through this, through discipleship. 
follow me, follow Jesus, and you can build on this great spiritual house that will make disciples of all the nations, that will really change the world, that the world might actually be born again through these people. So, church, the charge is this. It's our task as living stones who've been renamed like Peter in baptism to build up the great spiritual house and make disciples. Stone by stone, person by person, we build upon that one cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.